Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. For those of you that are listening on podcast, yesterday we had our Bible study and the equipment didn't work. So what's going on today is I'm actually going to do it again. I'm going to record it so I can put it on the podcast so you have yesterday's lesson to be able to listen to. But there's nobody else in the room. So if you're wondering, where is everybody? I usually hear people moving around. I usually hear chairs. I usually hear people making comments. Today, you're not going to hear that. So this is kind of a repeat of a lesson that we did yesterday. This lesson today, Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 is where we need to go to for our main text, which is verses 5 through 7. But we want to start, I want to start with verse 4. Let's talk about verse 4 first. Verse 4 is where we left off last week. It says this, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You'll remember last week we ended up talking about blood. In fact, if I could back it up even more, you'll remember how this chapter 9 story starts off, and in fact, going back all the way to chapter 8, verse 20, the ark comes to rest, Noah comes out of the ark, the first thing he does is he sets up an altar. And upon that altar, he makes sacrifices from among the clean animals. That discussion about sacrifices leads us to a study that ends up finding out, hey, there's a shadow, there's a type of Jesus. Jesus being the ultimate clean sacrifice. Then we ended up talking about in Genesis chapter 8, as we ended that chapter and into chapter 9, we talked about the blood of the sacrifices. That led to a discussion about the blood of Christ being the greatest blood that's ever been shed on this planet. We talked about the blood of food, the discussion in in Genesis chapter 8 and 9, and more specifically in chapter 9, Ended up talking about the blood of the sacrifices into the blood of food. All right, if you're going to eat food, make sure that your animal that you're about to eat is drained of its blood. You see that in verse 4, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And we had a discussion about the blood of the sacrifices, blood of food, and ends up being a discussion about the blood of Christ. Types of Christ, or shadows of Christ, I think was the title of our lesson from last week. So with that idea in mind, that the progression that we're seeing here where it talks about the sacrifice, where it talks about the blood of the sacrifice, where it talks about blood drained from your food. We ended up talking about the blood of Christ. Now the discussion continues into verse 5 with the theme of blood continuing. See here. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. If we originally were talking about the blood of the sacrifices, and then we were talking about the blood of food, whose blood is being talked about here? It's the blood of man. So verse 5 is the blood of man. It's a continuation of a theme. So verse 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. That's verse 5. Interesting things to notice there in verse 5. Number 1, in verse 5 where it says, Surely for your lifeblood... That word there, lifeblood, that's implying murder. The shedding of blood is a deliberate killing, as that phrase is used in the Bible. When you run across the phrase shedding of blood, 
It's not like somebody got a scratch and they're bleeding. All right, it, it's that their life has been taken from them deliberately. So surely for your lifeblood, we're talking about murder here. This is implying that the discussion is going to be one on murder. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. This is God talking. He is going to demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man. Now, I would think that most of us would be assuming that this verse would definitely require a reckoning from man whenever there's a murder. That makes sense to us. But animals? Is that really what we're seeing here? Is that animals will also have to give a reckoning? That's what it seems to say, doesn't it? From the hand of every beast, I will require it. Did you realize that animals are to be held accountable for killings just as much as people would be? I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 21. Let's look at the passage over there. Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 and 29. Verse 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. So here we have a situation in verse 28 where if a man owns an ox and the ox goes and kills somebody, the ox is to die. We have this conditioned mentality where, oh, it's, these are just animals. They're, I mean, they're doing what animals do. Should we really kill an animal? I mean, just because it, you know, for whatever reason, ends up killing somebody? It's just a dumb animal. God says if that animal takes the life of a human, that animal dies. But in this situation, the person who owns it is acquitted. That's if the owner doesn't know that the ox has a propensity or a history for doing that. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 is a little bit of a different situation. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So if you've got a situation where the animal is a known problem animal, the animal has a propensity, it's already got a history, it's got a past for doing this kind of thing, and the owner knows about it and doesn't do what the owner should be doing to keep that animal confined, the owner bears the same guilt that the ox does. The ox needs to die, and it says here too, and its owner also shall be put to death. You need to be careful about what kind of animals uh, you keep for your pets, all right? Now here we have a situation where the owner is held accountable just as the animal whenever there's a taking of a human's life. Why is that? Well, let me ask this question first. The blood of an animal compared to or contrasted with the blood of a human, is there more worth in either of those over the other? Yes, there is. The Bible would say that the blood spilled of man is of greater worth, of greater value than the blood spilled of an animal. Why is that? Because of verse 6. It has to do with the image of God. It has to do with the image of God. Today's lesson on the board I've written behind me, it's called Latin Pop Quiz. And then I've got Lex Talionis, one phrase in Latin, and the other phrase in Latin, Imago Dei. The Imago Dei is Latin for image of God. It's the image of God that makes all the difference. You see, in the creation, when God the Creator set everything in motion, there was only one thing that He created that bears the image of God, and that's us. 
That's mankind. The animals don't have the image of God. It's mankind. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Listen for the three times that the word image comes up over here. Speaking of the image of God, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the Imago Dei, the image of God, our first phrase that we're going to stumble across right here in our study, our first phrase in Latin. It's a phrase you're going to run across more as you study your Bible. The Imago Dei, it's just speaking of the image of God is all that's talking about. Going back now to verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother. This is an echo of the first murder when Cain killed Abel. From every man's brother. You'll remember in that story of Cain and Abel where Cain ended up saying, Am I my brother's keeper? That was in chapter 4, verse 9. This passage says yes. Yes. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. The Talmud, Jewish tradition, sees in this verse a prohibition, not just on murder, but also on suicide. That the taking of our own life would be in conflict with God's plan. You see, he has authority, he has the right to do with our lives as he will. More so than we do. We might think of it as, as our lives, as if, it, as if we could do with our lives whatever we want. That's not the picture that's portrayed in the Bible. The picture portrayed in the Bible is, we are creatures, he is the creator. He has the right to do with us whatever he wants. And we don't. Here's what I mean by that. If we decide I'm going to take my life, we are taking the prerogative of ending a person's life out of God's hand. That's up to him. It's up to him as to when you're going to die, not up to you. Suicide is prohibited by our Bible. This is just one passage. There are other ones we could look at. But this isn't a study about suicide. It's a study of Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, and also verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6 now says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God... He made man. Jewish tradition, again, would look at this verse, and as verse 5 would talk about the prohibition against suicide, this verse, they would say, also includes the prohibition against abortion. Abortion. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. I've got on the board here, obviously, I've written Imago Dei, and we've talked about that just briefly. It just means image of God. The other phrase that I've got written on the board here is lex talionis. Two words in Latin, lex talionis. Lex, in English, would be law. Talionis, retribution. Law of retribution. Let's look at a couple passages that have to do with that. Go to Exodus chapter 21 again. This time, let's look at verses 23, 24, and 25. Verse 23, starting in verse 23. But if any lasting harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Lex talionis, an eye for an eye, 
you heard that phrase before, I'm sure. An eye for an eye. Basically what Lex Talionis is, or the law of retribution is, that the punishment needs to fit the crime. And you see that in our modern judicial system. In the way that we've got our judicial system set up, you can see that that was an, something they adopted, a concept that's been adopted into our judicial system when our judicial system was created. That the punishment needs to be fitting for the crime. Next, Talionis would say, you don't punish a person in excess for what the crime was. If the crime was punching out a man's tooth, the person who did that injury doesn't die for punching out a tooth. It was to prohibit cruel and unusual punishment. You couldn't punish somebody excessively or beyond what the crime itself would call for. No more than the crime would call for, but at the same time, no less than the crime would call for either. Let's use the example of murder. You don't put a murderer in jail for five years when they took the life of somebody else. Lex Talionis would say, you took their life, the punishment is death for the person who took the life. When somebody takes somebody else's life, the punishment is that person needs to die. Lex Talionis. Do we have here then a statement having to do with capital punishment? It sure looks like it. It sure looks like it. We could look at a couple other verses, but first I want to do something else. I want to look first at this passage again, and I want to expand it a little bit to look at its full context, because you remember how I talked about that Jewish tradition is that this passage has to do with a prohibition against abortion? I think you're going to find here in Exodus 21 that same kind of idea. Here's why. We started our reading at verse 23, right? Back it up. Back it up to verse 22. One verse before it says this, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no lasting harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. There's our context. Looking now again at verse 23, what does it say? But if any lasting harm follows, then you shall give life for life. But if any lasting harm follows, to whom? to the unborn child. The teaching of the Bible is that life begins in the womb at conception. That we are made by God in the womb. Psalm 139 would speak along these lines as well. Alright, again, this isn't a study on abortion, but I put that out there because that's something that comes up in this passage. Moving back to our passage, you'll recall that I mentioned, do we have a statement here having to do with capital punishment? Look at all these concepts we've got. We've touched on suicide. We've touched on abortion. Now we're going to touch on capital punishment. All right, capital punishment. Does this verse, going back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, does this have some sort of statement to make about capital punishment? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And then the passage we just looked at. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, that passage right there. The eye for an eye idea. So the eye for an eye idea, or the lex talionis, the law of retribution, would say the person who murders needs to die. You might be saying to yourself, though, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus have something to say on the concept of, uh, what was it, eye for an eye? What? Yes, actually he did. Go to Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Oh, that's right. This is the turn your other cheek to them passage. This is the passage that Jesus is talking about, an eye for an eye. What is he saying about an eye for an eye? It sounds like he's saying that doesn't apply anymore, right? It seems to suggest that capital punishment, perhaps it was something that was appropriate in Genesis chapter 9. Perhaps it was something that was appropriate in Exodus chapter 21. But by the time we get to Matthew 5, it sounds like capital punishment is an idea that Jesus is saying is superseded and done away with. And now we just turn the other cheek. Is that actually what Jesus is saying? I want to give you one other passage to consider in this discussion. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. All right, so now I want you to consider this passage among the other ones. So what do we have here? We have Genesis chapter 9, seems to support capital punishment. Exodus 21, seems to support capital punishment. Matthew 5.38, hmm, doesn't seem to support capital punishment. And Romans 13, wait a minute, seems to support capital punishment. How do we get that out of that passage from Romans 13? Here's how. Because the person, God's minister, right? The ruler or the authority, the ruler in verse 3, the governing authority in verse 1, the authority in verse 3, that person, it says right there, bears the sword and does not bear the sword in vain. Is the sword an instrument you use to slap somebody on the wrist? To slap somebody on the back of the hand and say, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have murdered that guy, so I'm going to use my sword and tap you on the back of the wrist and say, don't do it again. Is that what the sword is for? No. The sword is made for taking a life. So Romans 13 is a capital punishment passage. How do we reconcile then Matthew 5.38, Jesus' words, and Romans 13, Paul's words, with one another? If Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek, and Paul is saying, Romans 13, sword, hey, capital punishment, how do we reconcile those? Here's how. In Matthew 5, Jesus is talking to the individual, and in Romans 13, Paul is describing the government authority, the society, a system in place to handle justice. So in Matthew 5.38, we are, as individuals, not to go after somebody, not to kill somebody. If somebody kills somebody in my family, it's no longer the place for me to go out and ensure that justice is done by killing the person who killed somebody in my family. Blood feuds and family feuds, the Hatfields and McCoys, that kind of thing. No, 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 no. Jesus would say, you turn the other cheek. That's not your place as an individual to do that. So if it's not the place of the individual, who's supposed to take care of that? Paul would say the government. Paul would say the authorities that are in place. You allow the authorities to take care of justice. 
society should have in place a governmental system that punishes the wrongdoers. The murderer gets taken care of justly by the government, not by an individual. So why is the punishment so high? Why is it that God would say, you kill the person who murders somebody else? It's because of the imago Dei, the image of God situation. See, out of the whole creation, we, bearing the image of God, stand closest to God. Nothing else bears his image. We are most like him out of everything that you would find in creation. And an offense against somebody who bears the image of God, when somebody takes that person's life, it's a crime against God. And so God's idea, God's plan is that you have in, in place a system that will punish the evildoer. But what about the people who commit murder and get away with it? Maybe the murderer isn't known or there doesn't seem to be enough evidence to find who it is that did the heinous crime. Or maybe it's a situation where there just wasn't enough evidence to convince 12 people they get to walk because 11 out of the 12 felt they were guilty and one out of the 12 didn't. On Judgment Day, when that person's standing in front of God, does God say, you know what, you were already tried by your peers and they let you go, so I'm going to let you go? No, no. See, God would be the perfect juror because he sees through the lies. He sees through the stories, the make-believe that happens in a trial, the confusion, the doubt that's cast. God sees right through that. And if a person goes through this life and gets away with murder, rest assured, friends, they won't get away with that when standing before God. He is creator. He is Lord and Savior. He's also judge. So taking somebody's life is a blow against God himself because of the image of God. One of the neat things that we see here as we're looking through this passage in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5, 6, and 7 is that the image of God has persisted and remained despite all that we've been through so far. See, man and woman, they originally bore the image of God when they were created in the garden in Genesis chapter 1. That was before the fall, before they intentionally sinned the very first time. And it's interesting to see that even though they broke covenant with God, even though they intentionally sinned against God, that after the fall, they still bore the image of God just as they did before. And then as time goes on, the earth grows wild and wicked, a grand populace with evil intentions all the time. And yet the image of God still remains. And here we have the image of God still remaining after the flood has wiped away all those and we're down to Noah and his family, eight souls who were saved on the ark. And the image of God still remains. It sounds like the image of God is a pretty persistent quality, pretty unchanging. Hmm. I wonder if that speaks somewhat to the character and nature of God. Going back to Genesis now, Genesis 9, verse 7. And as for you, this is God now addressing Noah and his family, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. See, we just had a talk about murderers, the taking of life. And now God makes a transition to say, but you, Noah, your family, in contrast to the takers of life, I command you to be producers of life. 
In contrast to those who would end life, I want you to start life. In contrast to the murderers of life, I want you to be the propagators of life. Imagine yourself as God for a moment. And imagine that you're now at this moment here where all the wickedness has been swept away. And you're left with Noah, a man who's found favor in your eyes, and his family. And you've preserved them. You now have eight people that you feel good about. I'm wondering if, as you're imagining yourself as God, wouldn't you be tempted to say, okay, you guys, let's just keep this small. Let's just keep it the eight of you and me. Don't be fruitful and multiply. Don't bring forth abundantly in the earth. We saw what that does. Don't multiply in it. That just leads to trouble. If I was God, I would be tempted to suggest that they just keep it nice and small with this group that, that I can trust to not grow wicked. But God says the opposite. The creator of the universe wants them to be fruitful and multiply, wants them to bring forth abundantly in the earth, wants them to multiply in it. And you know what? This isn't the first time we've seen this kind of language. Go to Genesis chapter 128, right after he creates them in, in God's image, in the image of God. It says here in verse 28, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. How about Genesis 8:17? What does it say over there? Genesis 8:17. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 9, the chapter we're in right now, verse 1, this chapter opens up with, So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then we have here in verse 7, Be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. You know what I'm hearing? You know what this sounds like? This sounds like God prefers the earth to be populated with lots of people. You ever meet somebody who wants a large family? Have you ever had this conversation with somebody? They go, I just, I just want a house full of children. I just want a house full of kids. I just want a house full of people, right? They're very personable. They're good with people, right? They're very personal in that sense. It, it sounds to me like God saying, I just want a world full of people. It sounds like God is kind of a personal God. It sounds like God is relational, that he's looking forward to, hey, let's, let's fill this place up. It sounds like he's pretty good with people and he's relational. He's kind of a personal, relational God. The creator of the universe? Personal? The creator of the universe? Relational? You know, sometimes people try to sell you the idea that the creator of the universe. Got it all spinning, got it all going, and backed away, and you don't hear from him anymore. He doesn't care anymore. He's backed away. It's on, it's on us now. Picture of the Bible paints is that God, the creator of the universe, the heavens and the earth, wants a personal relationship with us. Doesn't that blow your mind? The creator of the universe. Surely he's got better things to do. Surely his plate is full. He's got a lot going on. He's got to be busy. He wants a personal relationship. Wait, didn't that already fail? We had a world full of people. They were all wicked. That didn't end well. Nonetheless, he wants a personal relationship. He is a God who looks for a personal relationship with his creatures. That's just wild. That's just crazy. Are there other passages that would support something like that? Yeah, John 15, 15 is one. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Friends? The Son of God calling us friends? That's weird. 
How about 1 John 3, 1? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. Children? Wait, wait. Friends? Children? This is the kind of relationship God's describing that he wants to have with us? He's describing as existing now, this kind of relationship is available to us right now? That we could have this kind of relationship with the creator of the universe where he calls us friends, where he calls us children of God? You know, Leviticus chapter 26, 12 says this, looking yet future, says, I will walk among you. This is God talking. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. It sounds like God wants to have us in a relationship with him, to be his people. Ezekiel 37, 27, same kind of thing, looking still yet future. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Those two passages there, Leviticus 26, 12 and Ezekiel 37, 27, are looking forward. They're looking into the yet future for a time when he will be our God and we will be his people. When will that be fulfilled? Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Let's look at the first three verses. The first three verses. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. The day looked forward to by Moses when he penned the words of Leviticus 26, and Ezekiel when he penned the words of Ezekiel 37. A day when he will be our God and we shall be his people. Still yet future, but it's coming. And it's close. It's close, my friends. But you can actually have that relationship start now. If you're not already in a personal relationship with God, that can change right now. How can you have a personal relationship with God? Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Jesus agrees to meet with one of the religious leaders at night, Nicodemus. He meets with Nicodemus at night. And if you have a red-letter Bible, read the very first thing that you find coming out of Jesus' mouth when he sits down to have this discussion with Nicodemus. It's in verse 3. It says in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. You know what's funny about this is Jesus is answering a question that Nicodemus didn't ask. Nicodemus didn't ask, how do I have a relationship with you? Jesus just throws that out there. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Let's have a discussion. Oh, you need to be born again. <laughs> That's how you start off? That's how Jesus started off with Nicodemus. You must be born again. If you're wondering if the phrase born again is found in your Bible, there it is right there, John chapter 3, verse 3. You must be born again. Nicodemus goes on to ask what some of you might be wondering. How does that happen? Nicodemus even says, does a man crawl back up into his mother <laughs> to get born again? No, 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 no. This isn't about being physically born again. This is born a second time in a different way, and that's spiritually. You were born once physically. You need to be born again spiritually. That's how we become a child of God. 
That's how we become one of his family. And once you're born, he's there ready to adopt you and take you to be one of his, in his family. Did you know that that's the relationship we have with God? It's through adoption. You find that in Romans chapter 8. You find that in Galatians chapter 4. You find that in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. That the way we get into the family of God is through adoption. He adopts us. When we're born spiritually, he's there ready for us to take us home from the hospital like that. And we're in his family, adopted into his family. My daughter, one of my daughters is adopted. We were there when she was born at the hospital. We took her home. As soon as she was born, she was ours. As soon as she was ready to leave the hospital, she came home with us. In that same way, that being an illustration, when we're born again, when we're born the second time, not physically, but this time spiritually, when we're born again, spiritually, he's there ready to take us from that moment and we become his, his children. And we grow up to become friends and heirs. That's amazing stuff. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the God of the Bible. A God of the Bible who, despite being the creator of the universe, looks for a personal relationship with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to read through your word. We have available to us riches in the form of your word right before us. What would you say to us, God? And it's right there. We can open it up. You have so much to say to us. Help us to make the most of our time here on this short life, to spend time finding out what you would be saying to us. Lord, we thank you today for speaking to us on touchy subjects. We found something today, Lord, to talk about cattle punishment, to talk about a little bit about suicide. We got to talk about abortion. We got to talk about being born again. These are all things that make people uncomfortable. Thank you, Lord, that your word speaks to these things. And we just got to see a glimpse of it in one little passage. And your fingerprints, they're all over the whole thing. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for speaking today. Help us, Lord, to be changed. Help us to go and take this good news about how to become one of your children to somebody that needs to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.